0: It's Car Con Carne. Let's see. And welcome to Carcon Carne. Welcome to the holiday weekend. The show, this right here, is sponsored by our friends at Siren Records McHenry over there on Main Street in McHenry. Go pay them a visit. It's a holiday weekend. Treat yourself to some recorded music, a record, perhaps, a cassette. They even have some A-tracks. I swear to God, I've seen A-tracks there. My guest today, she is an author. She is a writer. She is a, a music critic. She is author Jessica Hopper, whose revised and expanded version of this book is... It's not out yet, is it? Am I premature? Tuesday. Tuesday, okay. It comes out on Tuesday. I was enthusiastic. The first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. She also wrote the book Night Moves. You read her stuff in the Chicago Reader, in the Chicago Tribune, Pitchfork, GQ, Rolling Stone, New York Times, Village Voice. Oh, my God. Jessica, hi. (laughs) Hi.
1: Thanks for having me, James.
0: So Tuesday, we will see you uh, talking about this book uh, on its release at the Chicago Humanities Festival. That's at 7 p.m.
1: Yes. I'm going to be be in conversation with the, with the, with the greatest and powers. Uh, Fantastic. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited for that.
0: So let's just start with the revised and expanded concept. Here we are six years later. Why revised? You got rid of some stuff. You added some stuff. What drove Mm -hmm. you to do this?
1: Well, when we were putting the book together in 2014, initially, you know, I, I don't want to say I had some other things to prove, but I was, I guess, just in a different, you know, as a different person in a different headspace about my career. And uh, I didn't put very much recent work in there. And um, I've done, I've had a significant body of work since then uh, that I think really, um, justified being in the book, uh, justified having a revision of the book. And also, you know, I just think differently as a critic and I really wanted to, um, have something that was a more expansive arc. I was just very grateful because when I, um, I'm doing another book with, uh, for our stress drew with MCD, the, uh, imprint that's putting out this book and, Uh, I I sold them, I sold them a different book that I'm doing. And uh, when we were wrapping up negotiations on that, they said, well, would you also like to bring your criticism collection here and just do a revised and expanded? And then once we really started thinking about what could be in there and how to make it uh, basically a different book, um, you know, I, I had to go again back to my archives and, you know, it's uh, rereading everything not everything you've ever written, but you know, sort of starting anew with a different mindset about this book um, really gave me a chance to basically make a different book, and for that I'm I'm really grateful. And that's that's not to say anything, you know, about my about the first edition of the first collection. It's just that it is. Um, that is a different book and, you know, some of the more landmark pieces of my career, you know, like my interview with Bjork or uh, the Rolling Stone women piece. I mean, there's like a handful of things that we just didn't get to do, um, you know, by virtue of they came out since the, well, since the first book was published. And so um, I just got to come to it with a, with a really different approach and I'm grateful.
0: Let's start with as far as the new editions go. Let's start with The Silver Lining Myth, which Mm -hmm. you wrote in November of 2016.
1: I wrote it the day after I said the day, like the morning after the election. Yeah,
0: because I'm reading this and this was my first time reading this piece. I thought, oh, my God, I'm one of those people who thought that that music would somehow take a turn magically with a new administration. And one of my favorite lines in the book is from this piece. But it's clear that as a country, we are entering a time when music can only provide so much cover. We're going to need to work closely together and we're going to need to get real. You were right. I don't think that happened, but you were absolutely right.
1: Um, you know, I mean, that's kind of a funny thing about being able to go back to old work. Uh, you, you get even a, with a long view, you get a, a better sense of, uh, you know, uh, either how wrong you were or how prescient you were. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes things that I, I um, you know, like email where the girls aren't. Um, I wish it wasn't as salient as it is now, you know? I mean, maybe even more so with time, there are certain pieces that have, um, at the time, you know, is arguing for a different future. And sometimes those futures have come to pass and, and I'm very grateful um, to be around long enough to see how scenes that I uh, either was involved with or was chronicling have changed and evolved.
0: For sure. Uh, another piece which I resonated so clearly with me was the piece on Nashville women, the, the bro rule uh-huh. in, in country. I mean, coming up as an FM broadcaster, I, this, this was spot on. And this was a conversation I'm glad has been started. And mm-hmm. uh, there's, oh my God, there's so much work to do. And can you explain the bro rule? So there is a piece of uh, air quotes,
1: conventional wisdom, uh, okay. particularly within country country FM broadcasting, that you can't play women back to back and you can't play more than one woman an hour. And so obviously that has really uh, fairly devastating uh, effects. In terms of, you know, who has just basically who who it seems like matters in yeah. country world, right? And whose careers get supported? Um, you know, the huge number of of women who are not uh, basically offered offered a rung up in their in their career, and also um, how that sort of distorts the idea of even who country is for, mm-hmm. who's the listenership. And, you know, when I interviewed some of the, um, these people who are very old guard and steeped in that reasoning and in this um, really outdated sexist worldview, you know, these these programmers um, really see things like, you know, me too, or women who are country superstars that everyone really has to kind of stay stay in their lane they're very invested in mm-hmm. the world not catching up to this you know sort of insular uh bro run world with their with their you know firmly entrenched rules and and it's really changed how um country has been as, as an industry but also how country radio sounds since the 1990s when you really did have at the at the middle of the 90s you know huge huge country pop superstar crossover you know uh led in part by you know the success of Shania Twain so you know it's it's really been downhill to the point where in recent um in recent years, they've talked about how it's getting under 10% in terms of the representation of women on country radio and women artists. And so um, all of that's to say, I went to Nashville a few years ago. Very young women, you know, some of them were 18 and 19, who were just saying, if this is how it is, and we know this going in, we're going to try to create something else. And we're also going to, you know, fight like hell to really create a community that supports each other because we don't have support otherwise. And so I got to spend a few days with these, with these incredibly talented women and um, see what they were doing for
0: themselves. It's uh, country, country radio in general, absolutely guilty. You're right. Uh, you realize that is not specific to that format. I mean, I remember you, you mentioned Bjork in the, in the 1990s, working for Q 101 in Chicago, female vocals, were sound coded in the system so that they never orbited around each other. It was like a 30 minute separation of female voices. So Bjork and garbage would be on opposite ends of the hour. So as not to have too many women voices Mm -hmm. on the air, that was for an alternative station.
1: Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, there's a piece that isn't in here. That is um, uh, a piece that I did uh, most recently uh, about the, it was an oral history of Lilith fair. And, you know, I had Sarah McLaughlin and, you know, I mean, <laughs> the the women who were absolutely the leading lights of that festival saying, you know, I couldn't get signed. Amy Mann told me how she couldn't get signed because um, the label told her, well, we already have Cheryl Crow. You know, that just... I know it's just I I know right. This is it's, Amy Mann. This is Amy I know. Mann. This is one of one of uh, you know our our great contemporary songwriters and, and just a huge uh, icon in her own right. You know, and they're just going well. We already have we already have a woman, or you know that um, you know when Sarah McLaughlin was, I mean, truly peak of her career, going around you know making. Um, making the stops at the the top forty radio stations, and you know, shaking the programmers' hands and all this, you know, she would, they would people would say sort of apologetically, going, "Well, you know, sorry, we we're not going to put your song in rotation because we already have the new Lisa Loeb single," and it's just, you know, I mean, it, and you are just like, it, it all of that goes to make a lot of sense out of the, the massive massive cultural impact and success. Of Lilith Fair because there was an audience that was starving for mm-hmm. those artists that was desperate for that connection and also desperate for a place where um, their fandom would be respected,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And so there's there's all of these things are you know fairly fairly interconnected even though they may be um, very different genres and and you know this idea of there can only be one woman pits, you know, has, has historically pit so many women against each other needlessly, you know? Um, and, and so I, I really, um, there's things like that, that I wish uh, were more further evolved in, you know, stories that I, you know, for example, the, the, um, the piece about uh, R. Kelly that is in the book where I talked to Jim DeRogatis and how long that's taken to uh, unfold and, in some ways, how pitiful the, the, the eventual justice there has been. So, you know, I mean, this is the, uh, the as you can see, all of these these things sort of uh, create the, the touchstones of, of my interest in music journalism and, and the, you know, the sort of path that that most interested me.
0: Uh, let's talk about the R. Kelly DeRogatas piece in the book that started as a Twitter discussion between you and Jim.
1: I mean, you know, discussion, but Jim and I would sometimes uh, fairly regularly uh, fight a little bit on Twitter. Uh, and (laughs) And so, you know, it started like that and then it grew into DMs and then it was phone conversation. And at the time, you know, he really felt like people were no longer interested in hearing him sort of bang the drum of that beat that had been his and his alone for you know almost two decades at that point, I mean, a long time, and people would mock him that he was like, "Why don't you give it a rest and da 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 you're persecut- persecuting, persecuting Mark Kelly and he was desperate to maybe not desperate, but he he really thought that um this story stood a better chance if it had a different messenger, and he thought I would be the good messenger and um he said take this over i will give you all my files and all this and i was like why don't we just have a conversation about this um and see where it goes because i didn't know if i was sorry you can hear my dog bowie
0: that's the beauty of doing this from home
1: i know valiantly defending me from you know being murdered by the ups person as they deliver our packages Uh right what would i do if i didn't have him to keep me alive through the day um but the uh you know, so I was talking to Jim about this and we have this conversation. And at the time, no one was super interested in printing it. And my editor at the Village Voice was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. Um, there's a new, there's a new R. Kelly record coming It'd be good to bring this back up. And I mean, no one had any idea that that would be, you know, a day later it would be the first time in like nine years, 14 years, like a long time that anyone had directly asked R. Kelly about it. And he, 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 was on, he was appearing on like an Atlanta radio station and they brought it up like point blank. And that started a whole new process again and a whole world of reporting um, for, for Jim opened up again about, um, you know, what we now know is R. Kelly, you know, uh, basically a, a much longer history of predation than
0: people could have imagined. Let's talk a little bit about journalism. Journalism's. Do in, we have to? <laughs> <laughs> we do you, because that's what you do. And you're very good at it. Journalism is in a really interesting spot. It's been attacked relentlessly by the right for the past several years. Uh, the Internet has kind of made it the Wild West. All that said, as I look at journalism from afar, it seems like there's great opportunity for really good writers, for people who want to dig in and get to a story to write long form content, multimedia content. It seems like there's a world of, of cool shit that a journalist can do right now.
1: I think, you know, uh, this is very much where I'm at too. In the last couple of years, I've um, largely started working as a producer, uh, working on uh, music history, podcasts, uh, producing documentary work, uh, editing books, uh, in part because while there are a lot of different um, opportunities to just do different things in terms of media and and the different ways to tell a story, um, there are it's, – it's really relegated to platforms that um, have a lot of control and a lot of say, and not – a lot of them don't necessarily have a lane uh, for – you know, music history or criticism. They're just not, um, what people are investing in typically, but also, um, you know, the alt weeklies I had in the course of putting this book together, you know, I think three, four alt weeklies where I had been a regular contributor, uh, went away. They went out of business, they stopped publication and that, you know, I mean, that's, that's, it's sad and a bitter situation and, and having worked in, um, you know, I was one of the executive editors at MTV news in its final iteration a few years ago, and we lasted 17 months. And then, you know, in one day, 53 people were laid off. And so it really, it does really dash your hopes. You know, I grew up in my parents' newsrooms. And so I, I've seen, you know, this is a very long, slow wave of, of, um, of journalism being devalued. And mm-hmm. um, part of the reason that I've turned to these other modes of journalism and particularly of storytelling is because um, even with you know, all the long form and whatnot that we can do online, um, sometimes there's stories that are just better, better suited to audio uh, mm-hmm. or video. And, um, you know, with books, to me, it's very important, uh, to do what I can to help ensure that there is, um, documentation of artists and scenes, uh, lots of times while they're hopefully while they're still here or to change, help to help try to change the ideas of whose stories are valuable Mm -hmm. and continually open up, uh, you know, the the canon and the idea of, um, you know, just sort of expand expand our ideas about music and music history and culture as you can dive further into them in a way that you just can't in a four or 5,000 word article. And so these things that are longer forms are really particularly interesting uh, for me. And also, you know, I've been working as a critic since I was 16 years old and I'm uh, forty four now and so i um I took up a lot of space in my industry in different ways mm-hmm. for a long time, and I really wanted to help avail uh new and different opportunities to uh writers that were coming up in my wake and I also just wanted to do different things myself so that I could um expand my palette expand what I can what I can do and the stories I can tell and the things I can bring to an audience.
0: Well, and yeah, you put your mission statement in the book. The book is to be used as a tool, perhaps to prop or pry a door open wider for young writers and fans to use, to use, to interrogate or reject all that came before them. The book basically says everyone should be welcome at the rock critic table. Women, most obviously, but anyone with a story have at it.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and part of that, too, is that I don't, um, I also, you know, have have a great eagerness to encounter people who even, you know, young critics who are like, I reject this idea that you've put out here, but I can, you know, like, that can even use the book to, as a thing to figure out how they think or feel about music in opposition to mm-hmm. how I think, you know, I mean, not, I don't want to necessarily see like, it will be like criticism. i in, you know, I reject Jessica or whatever, but that I really am just uh, deeply, deeply hopeful that it can be useful in the same way that so many, uh, you know, formative uh, music, critical texts were, were for me like Rock She wrote or Sex Revolts or later on Mystery Train or of course you know Lester Bang, some seminal tome um, you know there's there's so many different things that uh, influenced my thinking and my development as a writer and uh, I hope my book is half as useful to people as those those many books were for me.
0: I, I perceive music journalism. I, I love music. I, I find music journalism something that is very difficult to do well. I, I think in addition to finding your voice and, and figuring out who you are in this, in this universe, basic things like describing and contextualizing sound, I think, is very difficult. Like, I, I can't do it. I can never do it. But I, I, I think it looks easy on the page, on the screen. That person's just talking about music. I, I think it's incredibly hard. So I give you full credit. Uh, oh, thank you.
1: <laughs> I wish it was easier myself. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just barely starting to get my, uh, my brain back on after, uh, 15 months of having my, uh, my children home, uh-huh. uh, you know, I'm being like talking to adults rather than, uh, talking to grade school age children about the Marvel cinematic universe. You know, it's, it's, um, coming, coming back to the world of this, this book and being able to think about music now that my kids are at camp. So, um, is, is a real gift. I mean, this is something that really grew out of, um, my fandom, you know, my teenage, my teenage fanzine that I started in high school and writing for, you know, local, local music publications and all weeklies in Minneapolis when I was in high school. And, um later you know uh more sort of community-based fanzines like punk planet Mm -hmm. um you know for me as i i one i really loved i always loved writing even when i was especially terrible at it and then um as a younger person (laughs) and then uh you know secondly for me this has always really been an expression of fandom but also a way to be in dialogue with uh the scenes that I'm part of, other feminists, um, bands and artists, and um, and just trying to help push that dialogue along or challenge it or help help get it started.
0: For people who are watching or listening from Chicago, uh, Chicago's right there front and center. It's the first part of the book. Essays and pieces based around Chicago artists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about moving here when you're 21, Chance, juice box. There's the aforementioned conversation with Jim DeRogatis about our Kelly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Tell me about your relationship with the Chicago music scene, being part of this landscape.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if I could have had the same career anywhere else. You know, I, um, I had really cheap rent here. So it was possible for me to um, be a baby freelancer and not starve to death, just barely, but (laughs) you know, I managed. And um, when I first came here, I was so excited to be in, you know, I was living kind of around Wicker Park, uh 90 what was that seven oh my gosh and and
0: you know for context that was ground zero i mean that was
1: that that was in a lot of ways but there were so many ground zeros in chicago and that's kind of the point um you know at, at that point being able to see you know just legendary shows but also that in a night I could go, I had a, a very, the first night that I lived, or first night, first year that I lived here, maybe the year after, I remember in one night going to see like a hardcore matinee, I want to say, that Don Cavaliero headlined at uh, the Fireside Bowl. And then I went downtown and saw the Chicago Theater, Lauren Hill with Outcast opening, which was like, I mean, best show I've ever seen, for sure. Okay. And then from there, going to Lounge Jacks and seeing Rex and Juno Forty Four. I mean, come on. You know, so that was a that was a really formative education. But but crucially, here th- there is historically a phenomenal independent spirit and a sense of can do. And and you know, while sometimes I think there's a, at the time when I got here, there was a very intact very functional community that was pretty non-hierarchical where people would really share um, ideas and support very generously. Um, And it wasn't competitive. It was artistically competitive. Um, But, you know, that there were, that there was a noise scene and there was kind of the thrill jockey scene and there was, you know, kind of this more like old guard touch and go world, but there was also all of these, young punk and hardcore bands and just things that were super super left field and and one of the things i loved about chicago was that you know most of the folks i knew here similar to me had really omnivorous tastes you know we would go see you know the like the tentet downtown and then come back up and see something at the empty bottle that was just about as far as you can get from jazz and um you know, and also just as a, as a DJ and, you know, different bands that I was in, this was just, it's just a great music city historically. And the longer I've been here, the more I've come to understand the roots of that. And, and it's just really a gift because a lot of other cities, you know, you might have sort of enough infrastructure in a way to, um, or, or there's certain kinds of, of infrastructure, particularly when you're on the coasts, you know, and, and people, and there's labels and there is major media attention and there's, you know, you can tap into this, that, and the other thing that um, are more opportunities that are typically aligned with like, you know, making it or big success or something. And here, you know, in Chicago, if you, if you want something to happen, you need to contribute to it. And then secondarily, you probably have to build it. There's not a lot of rungs here, mm-hmm. you know. There's and, sure. and, and that's why we have, um, I think, such a, a diverse and fascinating uh, hip hop scene here mm-hmm. right now that, you know, that's how you can get um, a no name and a chance and a Jamila and um, so many folks that are just doing really interesting work.
0: Really well said. All right, Jessica Hopper. Here it is. Out Tuesday, the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. It is revised. It is expanded. Uh, it's awesome. It, it's from a thank you sociological perspective, from a music perspective, from a local perspective. I, I really enjoyed reading this. And like I said, I hadn't read all the pieces when they were first out in the universe. So having them compiled here, absolutely love reading it.
1: Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you.